Welcome, everybody. I'm Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia. Today, I'm joined by Amber Deans, who is communication guru extraordinaire. Welcome, Amber. Thank you. Hopefully, I can live up to that title. I'm sure you will. Um, so just by way of background, Amber and I met uh, a few weeks ago when Amber uh, kindly invited me on her podcast, The Politics of Everything, and we discussed the politics of negotiation, some of the sort of psychology around uh, different aspects of negotiation. And today we're going to be talking about different parts of communication. So I thought I'd return the favour in our conversations. Obviously, Amber has a lot to say uh, about various different aspects of communication. So we're going to talk a little bit about PowerPoint presentations and email communications and face-to-face um, videos, charts, all sorts of stuff. Um, so I'm going to throw a few questions to Amber. I'll throw in my two cents as well. And for those of you who are joining us live today, please feel free to uh, add comments into the chat box as we go. Um, so perhaps, Amber, if you don't mind, um, can you give us a bit of a sense of your background around communications? Where do you come from? Absolutely. So I've spent about 25 years across various communications roles and entities. My background's actually in newspaper journalism some 25 years ago. So worked for daily newspapers, worked in Hong Kong and London, and came back to Australia about 20 odd years ago and crossed over into what we used to call the dark side of corporate communications and PR. So a lot of my career has been spent in big agencies as well as in-house. And around 13 years ago, I started my first practice, Bespoke Communications, which still exists today. And I've also got a startup called Grace and Grit with a co-founder, Danica Bunch. So two entities, lots of hats. And as you mentioned, I have a podcast. I work with clients across all sorts of industries, but a bit of a sweet spot is certainly financial services and banking. Yeah, fantastic. So I've seen from looking at the people who have registered for this event, there's quite a few people from an advice super investments bent. So I guess we'll try and focus, I guess, on those given the sure. given the audience. But fantastic if you can give share your experiences from a range of different, different industries. I'm, I'm sure everyone would be interested in those. So how about then if we start with PowerPoint presentations? Um, so well, actually, let, let me not presuppose anything. What have you seen when you look at your clients and they're asking you to look at, the, say, a deck of slides that they're putting together? What are some of the problems you experience there? So I think the starting point often is people worry about two things before they really get to the, what, what problem they're trying to solve with communications. One is they get very tactical. And you just mentioned PowerPoint. That's a tactic. That's not necessarily a strategy. That's just something which you use to communicate. So often I get clients in a really simplistic way when we first sort of do a strategy with them to say, you know, what is your aim? What is your audience? And therefore, what are the channels and the messages that you need to use? And PowerPoint can be great. And it has a place. But I think sometimes doing a whole bunch of PowerPoints or a whole bunch of anything and expecting the audience to be engaged can be a bit tricky. Um, you know, PowerPoints themselves allow people to, in some ways, disengage because there's something to look at. There's often a human, but there's often a slide deck. And there's also the pull of the fact that, okay, is everything on this slide deck relevant to me and how long is this slide deck going to go for? So I think brevity is really important and understanding, you know, if I only had a certain amount of time, what would I chuck on these slides? And, and I, always, I always actually try and convince people to, to do no more than six to ten slides for a PowerPoint. Six to ten so, okay, so you, you made a as a general point rule. I mean, it just depends on what you're doing. But yeah, so 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 your broader point though was 
PowerPoint has its place in the first place. So question mark whether you should be using a PowerPoint pack in the, in the first instance. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So one example might be if you've got a, you know, a massive white paper or a report, I would imagine you'd want to circulate that, have that downloadable um, for your stakeholders or your clients or whoever you're trying to engage with. Allow them to actually have time to read that. But I wouldn't want to see the replication of the key summary from the white paper on a PowerPoint slide. And we've all been through this, you know, the death by PowerPoint bullet point slide deck where the presenter is clearly either not prepared or nervous about using this particular format and they just read the slides. And and really that wastes the audience time and it's a wasted opportunity to get people to, to, I guess, engage with you in the format that you're, if you're doing a webinar or an in-room presentation. You really should be using that time to maybe answer some questions or present some ideas or thinking that's sort of in addition to what might be in that particular white paper, for example. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, we just make sure everyone's on mute there. We had someone pop up uh, during that, uh, that that conversation. Um, so just sort of unpacking a couple of things that I've I've seen that I wouldn't mind getting your views on around the purpose of a presentation. So a couple of them. One is that there seems to be often a multiple purpose where do I use a PowerPoint presentation as a tool for me to then speak to and maybe I've got a, I don't know, a chart demonstrating the point that I'm trying to make. So it's a, it's a tool to support my speaking. But then often what will happen, in fact, I had this happen to me a couple of days ago, is someone will say, oh, I can't make your your presentation, but do you mind sending this, the slide deck over so I can see what you spoke about? And for me, I'm saying, I can send it through to you, but it won't make any sense because there's hardly anything on my slides because I'm really speaking to these points. So what, what do you think is the, the um, what some of the strategies you would use where you've got that sort of the conflict of multiple purposes there? Well, I think that would be an opportunity, I guess, if they, if they haven't made it and you haven't recorded it like we're doing today to actually offer them something else, depending if that's worth your, your time and return on investment for who the, who the stakeholder or individual is. But I would certainly follow it up and maybe it is about just doing a one-page a one summary of the key points if it's or, you know, something that allows you, I guess, to communicate and engage. But like you're saying, it's not really fit for purpose. If you've got a whole bunch of amazing visual slides and really you've scripted it so that the, the, the kind of punch of it is you being in the room or you presenting that and because you haven't you haven't done the death by PowerPoint thing, uh, I think they could be disappointed with the reality of just getting a slide deck, which doesn't have anything, perhaps some speaker notes in there, but certainly nothing that they can use because that was designed for a different forum. It's not actually designed to be emailed. Yeah. And another related one, I guess, if in, in an advice context where you've got a PowerPoint presentation, which might be a useful tool for an advisor to speak to a client about, but then you've got the overlay of all the compliance that goes with the, the delivery of advice is this incorporated into a statement of advice is it advice in the document itself how does all that fit together have yeah, you worked I in think that sort of environment I have certainly I mean I work with super funds I've worked with organizations such as AMP um, you know consultancies like PwC and it's the same thing there's often a lot of you know I guess um, compliance and legal information or your PDSs which have to go somewhere but maybe referring people to them depending on how much time you've got in the format rather than just reading them out. Um, obviously, you know, different t- types of communication demand different types of disclaimers, but certainly I wouldn't want to bog down a presentation by flicking from, I guess, your big 
big, big picture ideas or, your, you know, your, what you're trying to give people in terms of information, what you want them to think, feel or do with that information and every page having to, to read some sort of disclaimer. I think it's a bit of a common sense thing where you just think, look, most people here know that's going to be there. I will highlight it. Do I really need to read it or can I read it at the beginning or at the end so that there's a flow to my presentation that people remain engaged and we don't actually lose people along the way? Yeah, I think what I hear you speaking about when I'm sort of applying the lens that I get from sort of some of the psychology literature around uh, how people respond to different sort of formats of information or quantums of information is the idea of layering, which is to say I need to slice all of my content into layers. And the top layer is the biggest tickets, highest level, most important, possibly most digestible piece of information. I want to make sure I convey that thing first and only once people have had the time to to digest that properly, do I then give them the next layer down, which might then have more detail or it's a bit more specific or that sort of thing. And so you then create these layers in a presentation. Does that fit in? Does that marry? That, that makes sense. Done? That makes sense. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, taking me back to my journalism years um, a couple of decades ago, that inverted pyramid of news where you're really giving them the most important thing first, the headline, if you like, and the sort of opening statement and everything else is kind of backing it up or it's the devil in the detail and it's the pieces that you can go through. But I think the, the realities with something like a PowerPoint or even a video or a webinar presentation, it's about opening strong and it's about keeping the audience on the journey. And I think you lose people if you if there's too much build-up and too much background and too much history, that's not what people anticipate. And so there's a bit of a disappointment, I think, from a communications point of view when you spend too much time there and the, and the juicy stuff, the stuff they've really come for, is at the end when, you know, for whatever reason, you might have lost their attention already. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, perhaps my, my examples are a bit more boring than yours, than yours because, I mean, I, I'm like one of the things that frustrates me about some PowerPoint presentations is I'll have a slide and it has... I don't know, a word like summary, the, the title of the slide is summary. But then you've got to go digging into the slide to work out, yeah, but what is the summary? Or what, what's the point that this thing is conveying versus if you put into the into the heading, mark it up over the last three months or something, or whatever the main point is, whatever the summary is, then you've like, it's not, it's not a fantastic journey that people are on. And it's not exciting, or whatever, but you get it straight. It sort of hits you in the face without having to go digging in the weeds to try and find what that is. That's fit for purpose, though, I think, Simon, and that's what we're talking about here. That sounds like if that's what the audience needs to know, are you doing that effectively? I think, you know, for most practitioners, and we do have a few with us today in that comm space, you know, regardless of your industry, regardless of your role in an organisation, you've got to make sure that your communication is suited to the audience that, that you are with. Um, a lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about what they're going to say, but it's got to land with that audience. And look, in terms of audience analysis, you know, there's certain clients of mine that are very much diagnostic, forensic kinds of clients. And I have to give them a lot of detail, but I may not present that all in the PowerPoint. I will give them an opportunity maybe to ask questions at the end, to kind of do a bit of Q&A, to have a different session that is, is very much geared to that detail so that we're not sort of derailing, well, what's the purpose of this 30-minute or 45-minute presentation and who else is in the room that I need to be communicating with? Yeah. What about bullet points? Do you have a, a sort of a rule of thumb of what to put in bullet points, how many of them on the slide, that sort of thing? I don't like any, but that's just because I'm a very visual communicator. Um, I often, my analogy I often give people is um, pre pretend that you, pretend the power goes out and your PowerPoint fails. 
could you do your presentation? If you can't do your presentation without those bullet points and that security blanket, it's obviously not a very good presentation. So the reality of presentation is, yes, it's visual, but it's also you speaking. So you've got to really think, and I've had that happen. I've had a situation where that overhead projector or that sort of, you know, the, the system that you're hooking your HDMI cable up to hasn't worked for a, with a client. And I've had to be very flexible. So I think if you're really thrown because everything's on that bullet point slide and you need to read it, then perhaps you haven't done enough preparation or you haven't actually spent enough time thinking about what are my messages regardless of the format. So to me, PowerPoint's a tool that can also detract away from, you know, people actually engaging with you as a presenter. And that's the yeah. reading and the bullet points piece. I don't mind bullet points, but I think, you know, as I mentioned, if you can send them some information before or afterwards that has maybe some summaries in there, that's fine. But I wouldn't want to see every slide with a bullet point. Yeah, okay. I must admit my security blanket is that I print the things out. <laughs> so if, if the lights go out. Well, I oh, see, you, you're extra prepared. Most people don't do that. They go, it's on my USB, that's it. But it's like, well, that's not going to work either. Or, you know, there's something that might happen on the day or the room is suddenly not suitable and, and so you're kind of having to speak to far more people or far fewer people than you expected. Can you be flexible in that as well? Don't use technology as a crutch would be my, my tip for those sorts oh, of things. Oh, gosh, I'd be, I'd be completely nervous with a USB stick. I mean, I rock up with <laughs> a computer with a hub which has got HDMI, it's got USB-C, it's got VGI, it's got sort of... <laughs> that's, that's next level, Simon, I have to admit, but it is good to be prepared, but it's just being mindful that um, a great present presenter... You know, I think of someone like a Barack Obama, for example, can't imagine him with a PowerPoint. You know, if you're trying to get be a great orator, make sure you have time to practice that, not just rely on the PowerPoint to be able to read it out. Sure. Um, what about um, charts and graphs that you see in PowerPoint slides? What have you seen there? I love visual mediums. I think particularly in financial services, um, there's obviously a place for that. That's data. That's data presented visually. That doesn't get better than that. That's way better than a bunch of PowerPoint facts and figures. But I suppose it's making sure that it's legible. So the amount of times I see a graph that's been shrunk into a slide deck and, look, it's fine for the presenter, but if I'm sitting at the back of the room or I'm, not on, I'm on my phone watching it, I'm not on a big screen, if I can't actually read it, it's kind of a wasted opportunity and that slide probably needs to be rethought so that you're not having to read the graph out to people or have people actually say to you, I can't read it or what does that say or, you know, what's on the XY graph, you know. And so just being mindful that, Graphs are great, um, but like every piece of communication, just like the bullet point, I don't want to see a million graphs either. I want you to switch that up a little bit and think about what's the most important graph that's relevant to this audience. Yeah, so let's suppose that the graph is relevant and it's big enough to see. Then, then what else? What else would you suggest looking at? I would love people to tell me, so what? So what am I really looking at? Don't just tell me this is the history of the share market since the 1900s. I can read that. That's fine. But what are you trying to show? What picture are you trying to paint? And what story and narrative are you trying to build? And so using that tool, that visual tool of a graph to actually take people on that journey is really fantastic. I, I applaud that. But I suppose the danger is that you are just reading that slide out and hoping people understand the so what factor or why I'm seeing that. And sometimes it'll be super obvious because, you know, it might be a presentation about the history of the share market or, you know, where the share market is right now or whatever it might be, whatever indices you're working with. But at the end of the day, you've got to make sure that it, it's got to have a purpose and 
every every slide I think is is kind of valuable real estate and you've got to work out how long you're going to spend on that and what do you need to say that's going to really speak to the audience from from what you're sharing not just a kind of a knowledge fest where you're going oh look aren't I clever I've got this fancy slide I think it actually has to be something that they either haven't seen before or if they have seen it before you give them the context of why you're showing it to them and, and why it's important for them to some pay some attention to it. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that it's not particularly clever if I show a supposedly clever chart that nobody understands. <laughs> that doesn't. And that's the risk, and you're not going to get necessarily people who say I don't understand it. No one wants to be that person, but you might just lose the audience. So I think that's a really good point, making sure that it's not just something that's for a narrow audience. And if you, if you know, if you're talking to a room full of economists and that's their bag excellent but it's not in their wheelhouse um, perhaps in a wider audience then perhaps you need to question why you're showing that particular type of graphic yeah I mean there's a couple of things that occur to me that I'd be interested to see whether you've come across these as well so for example just the ease of making comparisons between between things so we, we often judge things by not objectively how good is this thing in its own right but how good is it compared with something else we're just making a sort of a virtual comparison i guess it's sort of how we buy properties you don't really know how much the thing is worth but you know what the other ones around the neighborhood have gone for, for it's example, all a bit relative in a way isn't it if you think about yeah. it so so if you're showing me the return on i don't know overseas equities is x well yeah. is x good or is it bad well, you really need to compare it with what's it been on Australian equities or what was it the year before, or there has to be some sort of comparison. And when it comes to charts, what I'm often looking for is, so how easy are the comparisons that you're asking me as the audience to look for? If you're asking me to judge whether that overseas equities return is good, and you're asking me to look at this bar that's on the left-hand side of the chart, and there's a whole bunch of other bars, and I have to compare it with this bar that's on the right-hand side of the chart, you're making my job unnecessarily difficult. So what you should do is put that bar next to the first one and maybe put an arrow going much higher this year than last year. So that, that sort of that sort of thing. Yeah, How do we just and that's really the so what factor. That's what I'm getting to. That's the context. That's the the why you're even showing this to me. I think that's really important. And don't assume, like you say, that everyone's going to know what that means. Yeah. And another one we, we talked about offline, um, an example was the, the use of the axis, which can then change the interpretations. I did a, a study with several hundred financial advisors a year or so back showing them the same returns over the same period from the same investment but one just used a straight regular scale one used a logarithmic scale and it just changed the whole shape of this long-term return and so asking them hey would your clients be satisfied with a risk profile of this of this investment looking at historical returns and the people who'd seen the logarithmic um, version of the chart which arguably actually is a more appropriate representation of relative returns and relative risks over long periods of time well they said oh yeah the clients would be more happy with that investment despite the fact actually it was the same investment that these other advisors had seen that would show this sort of sharply jagged line which was just using the um the, the, the non-logarithmic or the or the straight scale do you get involved at all on that that sort of level of detail around uh, absolutely that? and we and i guess sometimes it's about testing it with a like an audience before you test it to the real audience so actually you know internally perhaps circulating that and talking about what does that really show do you understand it um do you understand the difference and and actually road testing a little bit because like you say it can be a bit smoke and mirrors for a lot of people that looks great but but what is it was it really showing me and like you say the same information presented two different ways has a very different reactions from the audience. So thinking about what you're trying to do, what are you trying to convince them of or educate them about is really important. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about we move then on to videos? 
So what have you seen then with, with videos that clients are producing? What, what goes wrong? In oh, place? I love video. Video is a fantastic medium. I don't say that just because I used to be a TV journal. I, I really do love video. I think people consume video multiple ways. So, you know, on your phones, you could be, you know, multi, they call the rise of the second screen where you could be, you know, working and watching TV or, you know, having multiple laptops open. I think with video, it cuts through the clutter, but it's very hard to get people wanting to do video. It's something about not just being on camera, but the idea, it's an overwhelming medium, but really the barriers to entry are so low now. I mean, you can get professional video people involved, but you don't have to. You know, we've all have smartphones. We've all got great cameras these days in most of our devices. So I think sometimes a video, people see it as a, as a cherry on top, but I often say to people, how about you just do a short video? And, you know, there's clients that I've convinced who've never wanted to do it. And the reality is they've had more downloads than that. They would have had openings of their EDMs or their or their newsletters that I spent, you know, a week or two writing. So just thinking about creatively about video, but also once again, brevity, five-minute video, no way, not going to watch that at all um, in terms of, you know, is it fit for purpose? Most of our attention spans are that 90 seconds to two-minute mark. And a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, we just want a short video. And then when you actually script it and you go through the process with the client, if you get too many voices in there kind of saying, you know, we need to say this and we need to say that, then they become three-minute, four-minute videos. And that's where I try and encourage people to do a little short series, chunk them down, one message per video, that is it. Yeah, and you mentioned their scripting. So, would you recommend that people have a script and they're reading? Oh, absolutely, the absolutely. At least know what you're going to say. I mean, it depends on the style of video. We're talking so broadly here, but generally, I mean, there are sort of you know Facebook lives and things like that that people might do, which you know might be just them in a room at an event talking about what's happening in the industry. That's very different. But at least know what you want to say so that when you actually go to record, it comes across very confidently as well. I mean, the reality with video is the video doesn't really lie. It amplifies everything good and bad about your communication style. So if you are nervous or there's big pauses, it comes across. So I always encourage people to spend some time rehearsing. Also just saying those words out loud. So what looks great in a script? If it's a really complicated word and you keep stumbling on it, we get rid of that word, okay? So the way we speak is far more colloquial than the way we write, and that's how it should be. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, at the start of the um, pandemic lockdown period, I created a whole bunch of behavioural finance videos. And so I started, I don't know, maybe I did 120, 150, so quite, quite wow. a lot of quite short videos. And when I started out, I tried to write the whole thing out and then remember it so I didn't have to look down and read it off the script and then say it back into the into the camera as naturally as I could. And my goodness, it was nigh on impossible. I was, A, I was stuffing up. And then B, I became so petrified of all my stuff ups that I think even the bits that I got right, I was, I was so, it, anyway, it wasn't natural. And yeah. so what I ended up doing was having, I guess, having written it out and then just, but then remembering like the four, four or five bullet points so that I could think, oh yeah, that bullet point was about blah, blah, blah. And I could talk about those things. And it, after that, my blood pressure just came right down from the whole experience. And it, I don't know, it seems to me much more natural to not have it sort of scripted word to word. Yeah, I wouldn't do word for word. I mean, I, but generally speaking, people if, might need to have you know, there's so much you can do, particularly if you get to record it remotely yourself and have time on your side. You can, you know, you can have some large post-it notes on the other side of, you know, the camera 
which is with the couple of keywords in there. But I would practice it out loud before you record it. So by the time you record it, it's actually coming across very naturally. And you're not, your brain is not thinking what's two steps along. You're actually really present. That's the thing I love about video. You have to be really present. You have to kind of amplify your body language. It, you know, the camera does flatten all of that. So trying not to be monotone, trying not to be boring is really important because your voice and the visuals is all we've got really. So if those things aren't, aren't working, then people are just going to watch about 10 seconds and all that time you spent is going to be wasted. So I think it's about practicing it, getting, getting comfortable with it. You might not ever love it, but people consume YouTube, for example, more than anything else in the world. So you know, being being good at video and thinking, is it the right channel for my particular clients it is really important because you'll find they will likely to watch that more than they're going to read anything that you send them. Yeah, so a couple of comments here from Tim. There's a good teleprompter software and apps you can use these days too, even if you're just doing dot points. Yeah, good tele teleprompters are good. One thing I've struggled with with, with some of the, the senior execs <laughs> with a teleprompter is I can tell, and it might be just because of my training, but I can see their eyes moving. And and so it can be great, but I would have it as a backup if that makes sense. I yeah. the video the video crews that I tend to work with, we try and get people not to we have it and it moves at a certain pace. So you know it's big writing. If you really need it, great, but you shouldn't be reading it anyway. You should just be looking at it and then just seeing keywords that prompt you. So yeah. that, that's the only thing. It's the eye line thing, which is really, really important, right? It just and can, you know, there's all that non-verbal communication. If someone looks a bit shifty or they're looking off camera at notes <laughs> or someone yeah. is, you know, you can tell when someone's there. I prefer a human there, to be honest, sometimes if we can, if it's not lockdown. Um, I've done that with a couple of CEOs that I've worked with recently. We've actually had, you know, someone that they know and trust there and they might just prompt them. Yeah, I, I had similar thing. Mine was a low tech solution. I just had some post-it notes on the side, but every time I had to move the gaze across to the side, it did look like I was sort of wondering what I was, anyway, it was noticeable. So I'm yeah. like, no, no, I have to keep looking here. If I can see it out of the corner of my eye, maybe it's okay, but I, otherwise, yeah, it's sort of just attracted. But, but blink as well. The other thing is don't do the, the stare <laughs> where you're just reading it. Like it's natural to blink. It's natural to look off camera. Yeah. It's, you know, use your hands, all of that stuff. It's really important that you don't look like a robot as well. Yeah. And so who should be doing this? If you're in a, an organisation, should it be the boss, the CIO? Should it be a marketing person? An ex depends on the expert? message. 100% depends on the message, Simon. So obviously a major announcement, probably the CEO or the founder or someone in that sort of executive leadership team, if it's, you know, a marketing message, the marketing person's fine. I mean, who you send out, does depend on the message. It's a CEO we don't use for everything in the clients I work with. Sometimes it is the operational person because it's very much a tech update. So the subject matter expert's often the best person, although, you know, obviously something massive like a restructure or a merger, for example, that would definitely be something the CEO would be expected to do. Yeah. And what about these videos that you quite often see on YouTube where someone's walking down the street taking a selfie or they're in a cafe or in the front of a car or something? What, what do you think of those? Oh, look, they're fine. They're fun. And I think sometimes that's the thing. It's got, not everything has to be serious, even if you're a business. Um, you know, if you're celebrating, I don't know, International Happy Socks Day, make that a bit fun. Don't make that boring. Um, obviously, if you're talking about, you know, something very serious like financial results, we are expecting a different type of medium. But I, I, I actually like companies that are comfortable to play a little bit and show you their human side. So it's not so scripted and formal. I think it just depends on the message. 
Yeah, I, I must admit, when I look at that, I think, yeah, some organizations can get away with it more than others, particularly if you're a smaller operator and it's, yeah. hey, I'm the founder of this company and there's only five people working here. You can see me walking down the street, but I, do I want to see Matt Cummins doing this, this CBA's annual results while he's walking down the street? No, <laughs> no exactly. That's not fit for purpose. So like you say, it depends on your brand personality and what people expect of you as well. But sometimes people um, overthink it. And I think it, a big production for something that's just a 30 second video is sometimes is, is overly curated as well. Yeah. What about subtitles? Should you put the subtitles in? I don't mind those actually, because I figure say you're on public transport or something and you're on your phone watching the video, at least then you can probably, if you don't have your earphones, put the sound down, have a little read, um, summarises it for people. It also breaks it up. A talking head for three minutes is pretty boring. So having some, some cutaways and other things in there that bring it to life, a little bit of music, um, it actually just gives it a bit of energy so that people actually stay on that journey with you. And should you create a transcript version, do you think, that people can read instead? You can if, if you feel like that's something the audience is going to want. Um, I don't think it's expected. I mean, I think if you do a great video and you have a couple of slides that might have a key message or two in there, that's probably enough for people because the reality is a video has a shelf life and you're likely to produce another video. So mm. a transcript is probably a bit, of, a bit of overkill in some ways because it is only a, such a short medium. It's not, it's not asking people to watch a one-hour webinar, for example. Yeah, I must admit I... Well, it's probably for longer videos, but the ones that are a bit longer, I prefer to watch the, sorry, I prefer to have the transcript available so that I can skim through and go, oh, actually, the bit that happens two thirds uh, of the way through, okay. I'm yep. actually interested in that. Did I have to watch it to get, it's, it's just, it's easier to skim through, I guess, and find what I'm interested I, I in. I agree with that. And I, someone's just made a point in the comments for disability as well, access, accessibility, yeah. um, having, you know, titles and, and words and transcripts. It just depends on the, on the type of video and what, What's, is it to inform, is it to educate, is it to make an announcement? And who's your audience and who are you expecting to watch it? If it's an internal video, that's also different again because you're not worried about all the sort of external stakeholders who might be there and you kind of know who's going to be watching it in your organisation. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right, so out of PowerPoint slides and videos, it sounds like you're in favour of the videos rather than the PowerPoint slides. But let's, oh, let's look, I, I don't mind a PowerPoint, but I think people have, it's a crutch for a lot of organisations and, and it can be lazy communications if it's not done well. Sure. All right, what about emails? Let's move on to emails. And when I say emails here, I guess I'm referring to a range. It might be your EDM, for example, that's going out mass, uh, mass communication to a bunch of clients, for example, or it could be a nuanced one-on-one -on -one email to a colleague. So I'll let you pick and choose sort of from your examples sort of across that range. Yeah. But what do you, what do you see in terms of emails? Oh, look, emails can be our best friend. It can be our worst enemy. I'm sure lots of people here relate to the, the overflowing inbox and, you know, curating that every day can be a job in itself. So I think sometimes it's thinking about why am I emailing and do I need to CC absolutely the whole world on there? Like I've worked with a lot of, lot of government organisations and that's just a kind of, it's a cultural thing where it's very bureaucratic to have to CC people on everything. But it's probably not necessary and sometimes it can be much better just to set up, you know, a 15-minute um, Teams meeting or use Slack or other forums to actually communicate an idea or a message in real time. Um, I, I laugh when people send me a follow-up email going, you didn't get back to me. It's like, well, I'm clearly in training. I'm doing something else. If it's urgent, I do have a phone and I do have other <laughs> things that you can actually use. So I think it's it can depend on the type of organisational culture. I, I love an email that summarises something that has purpose, it has hyperlinks, it can get me to do something, but I 
don't think a, a really long email, I, I think most people would agree, is, is doesn't tell me what I need to know and what you want me to do with that information. So emails are fine, but I, I think these days there are so many other ways we can communicate with our team. Um, as I mentioned, things like Slack and, you know, Messenger and things where if it's instant and you want that level of attention, you, you probably shouldn't be relying on email for that. But, of course, an EDM is something that's pre-planned and goes to many. So that, that's a bit of a different form of communication. Yeah, so one thing you mentioned there was the email maybe not making it clear what action it wants you to take as a result of it, which I think is, is a fantastic insight because some, some of the stuff that I look at that super funds might be sending out, for example, and they go, oh, yeah, it looks fine, but what actually are you trying to get this person to do as a result? And Absolutely. Question is not necessarily that easy. Sometimes it's like, well, you know what, actually we, we would like to have the member just feeling better. And, and maybe that's an end in itself. I don't know. But I prefer if there is a behavior. What, what actually we want them to do? Well, actually, we want them to check whether they've got enough insurance or, I don't know, maybe it's review whether sticking in cash, which they've been in since the pandemic came, <laughs> is a good idea for them, given they're only 18 years old and they've got their whole life in front of them. Well, that, that sort of stuff. Because then you can go, well, okay, now what is the step? How easy is that step? Is it? And, and how we can measure how many people actually take the step rather than how many people feel a bit better having received this email. So, so what are the, some of the sort of things around that sort of action-oriented, getting people to do stuff? And sometimes I'm just thinking there are, there are times when it's literally just about blowing their own horn. They may have won an award and they want people to know that their super fund's amazing and awesome and doing the right thing by their members and therefore there's not much for them to do other than stay with the fund and, and feel good about that decision. So um, I think not everything has a specific call to action, but I, I do wonder why sometimes people in particularly a newsletter or you know those sorts of formats actually communicate some of these things they sound particularly if they've already communicated another way so I'm thinking like particular um super fun that I'm working with at the moment they might have already sent a notice of something that's happened to all their members because you know the regulator required them to but to mention it again in the newsletter sometimes just is like wasn't that a month ago and you know you just fill in the space so I'd rather a shorter newsletter that didn't repeat information um I'd rather have something that's new and fresh and relevant and something I can, you know, actually understand really quickly as well because think about how how much time do you really spend, you know, reading a newsletter that's going to take them two weeks to circulate through all the layers of the organisation depending how big they are. Um, I think sometimes the return on investment is quite low for that kind of communication as well. Yeah, yeah well, I actually wonder whether the return on investment is negative in some cases because, I mean, that, that example where, okay, the funders won an award, we really want to just communicate to our members to say how awesome we are. Yeah. So to, to me, there's a couple of potential negatives of that. One is you send me a letter and I go, oh, for God's sake, another letter. Uh, that's right. I meant to switch my funds. You just prompt. So, so they're, they're actually. Yeah, you, know, you can have the opposite. Back. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even if they don't do that, then you're now telling me, all right, we're sending you stuff, but really you can ignore a lot of stuff that we send you because you don't have to do anything with it. And I keep getting these letters from the phone going, that's a waste of time. That's a waste. So when the one comes, it says, Simon, what about this that really is important for me? You haven't updated your tax file number, therefore we're deducting extra interest, extra tax payments or something. Like, no, no, I wanted to know about that, but it's now mixed in with all this other stuff that I'm happily, I can happily ignore. So, so that if we can measure some of that sort of stuff, if we can send out the newsletter to people and go, is it re causing retention or is it actually prompting yeah. churn at that point? And then yeah. how is it impacting engagement on the things that we send them? next as well so i do wonder whether we can get a bit smarter around some of the behaviors that actually or the actions that people are or aren't taking even if it's communicating an award 
Exactly. And I think it's about asking them, asking the members, do you find this valuable? What else would you like to see? It's not a one-way thing. I think big organisations particularly struggle with that engagement. I mean, a lot of getting better at it. But, you know, for example, the super fund I've been working with that's about to go through um, a merger process is, is very much around we've had to really step up the engagement. We've had to run webinars. We've had to run them at all different times, inconvenient to the leadership team because their particular workforce is works on rosters and they can't do a 12 o'clock one because they're in a control room somewhere, for example. So being aware that you, you have to be willing to engage and one-way communication is really all about you at the end of the day. That's that's the reality. So, you know, that's where things like holding, you know, different types of forums can be really powerful because you might get the feedback. They might say, I want a newsletter, but I only want it once every six months. Wouldn't that be a great thing to know before you do one every month and struggle to kind of get it out on time and dedicate your resources and, and realise that really the open rate is 1%. <laughs> yeah, so if the open rate is 1%, so say I've sent a survey out to people and they say, oh, we'd love to get your your um, your update every six months. And yeah. then you send out your survey, you, sorry, you send out your uh, investment update every six months and the open rate's 1%. So that, that to me is the challenge of what people say they want versus yeah. what they actually want. Particularly it's what they wanted that day that you asked them. I and mean, it's like, it reminds me of exit polls in, in political life. That's where they, ne- they always get so wrong because that day you might have a certain experience or a feeling about it, but six months later, something else has happened um, and it's not as important to you anymore. So, look, I think some organisations and newsletter, it's just what they've done. It's a legacy communication, but do you need to have it? And, look, People unsubscribe, but people often just can't be bothered, right? How many newsletters I think about unsubscribing and then I, I kind of get busy and don't do it. Or I do it in January when I'm not that busy and then <laughs> subscribe to some more that I, at the time, was great because I really wanted to know about widgets. But now I don't need those widgets, but I just still subscribe. So I think it can remind you about the organisation, but to put everything into a newsletter and going, well, we told you, might not be, always be the right way to go depending on mm. what the news and the information is that you're sharing. Yeah, so some of the themes that are coming out, even the disability example, is if I'm a super fund, I don't necessarily know that my member is disabled or has reading difficulties or vision vision impairment or audio audio issues, whatever it is. I don't know that. I don't really know whether they prefer reading versus watching videos. I can ask them questions, but they might tell me things that may or may not actually link to their behaviour and preferences down the track when I actually do these things. And it's pretty critical because it's coming to things like, I don't know, ESG, for example. So you ask people, is ESG important to you? Hell yeah, of course it is. Yeah. You want to save the environment. And it, it's, so they will say that responses to surveys, and one came out the other day, I think saying 75% of people would switch financial advisor if the financial advisor wasn't doing appropriate ESG stuff. Mm. And then I posted that online and one advisor said, I've never had anyone actually ask me about ESG or some, some, something like that. So it's the, it's the difference. I guess when you're in a survey, you're prompted to think about this thing and you've got this lens, which is what's the right thing for me to do? Oh, yeah, of course, ESG is the right thing for me to do. When my fund offers me an ESG option, yeah, I'm too busy. It's too complicated. Oh, if it's going to cost me more money, that's the other thing, like a pain yeah. point for people. Yeah. Yeah, so that, which is, creates a challenge of how do you understand and personalise communications then to members, given that we've got this difficulty. We just don't know that much. And even what we ask them might sometimes be not quite right either. So what, what's... What else can we do to try and understand and sort of tailor to different members, do you think? Well, I think that the, the key there is different members, right? With, members are not one homogenous group, just like people who live in a certain suburb are not one homogenous group. We've got different values, different drivers, different belief systems. So 
you might have a fragmented membership base because it's an industry super fund. And so you've got all sorts of people in that mix. And I think it's about spending some time working out what matters to them. But sometimes organisations can just take the lead on something and make an announcement and say, we are no longer investing in coal-fired power stations or where, you know, there's been examples where that's happened. And that's not necessarily something I imagine members rang up a helpline or, you know, a customer service desk and said, hey, I'm going to pull my money out of this if you if you don't, but they've decided to be a leader. And so that sort of stuff can actually help, but it depends on what the organisation wants to achieve and, and I guess understanding what's important to its members. And for some people, that'll matter a lot. That'll keep them awake at night. For other people, give me my returns and, you know, don't bother me kind of thing. So it depends on your member engagement level. And, you know, some super funds, for example, have a very engaged member base and others are very broad and big and, you know, it's, it's very diverse. Yeah. So one of the things that's um, just on the same track of personalisation, so given we don't know very much about our members in many cases, uh, okay, fine, most of them are unengaged and we might know their age, we might know their super balance and maybe we might yeah. know their good guess of their income. We don't, don't know that much. But given those handful of things that we do know and maybe some things that we might be able to guess maybe from their behaviour based on whether they've come to our website where they switched in the past, that sort of stuff. And what options do we have then, do you think, for personalising some of the, well, I'm thinking of super funds in particular, but maybe it might, it's the same, might re- relate to advisors or investment managers potentially as well. How can you use what we've got, do you think, to personalise some of that, those EDM type communications? You're going to have to run some surveys. And like you say, they're all moment in time things, but or hold webinars and have people actually tell you, like actually ask. And I think ask in a way which they're accountable. So not just an anonymous survey. Sometimes it can be great to actually, you know, say we're going to speak to a bunch of you. Can you please jump on here? Can you do this? You know, it's only going to take 20 minutes. But actually showing that you care can be great because, you know, financial organisations don't have a great sort of reputation for showing that they care. And in Australia, I did work with um, one organisation during the Banking Royal Commission. I know what that looks like. So to be honest, it's it can be something they're not expecting, but I think you've got to do things differently. I think the, the, the set and forget, the, the just one-way communication about things because you've always done them that way um, often needs a bit of a rethink uh, and it needs to be challenged because at the end of the day, why are you communicating? What's your aim? Okay, what's your who are your audience audiences and then what are your messages rather than just a whole bunch of messages, which I think a lot of organisations just get into the, to the habit of. So I, I think it's about like every other like it's like a HR review you know you would you'd kind of look at that every year or every six months and you kind of have a 360 look at what's happening in your organization think about your communications like that too I think review it challenge it um and try something different if it doesn't work well it doesn't work but it might take yeah. time to build momentum like videos or things like that as well yeah um all right so let's just do websites very briefly as well then yeah maybe one or two points on that then i might ask for the audience to um give us some more questions and maybe we'll sure. finish off with some verbal communication but just on on websites what what um one or two things on that that you would on that front that you would suggest we should be doing differently so i suppose what's the purpose of your website it can't just be a glorified brochure um i think you can spend a lot of time and money on a fancy website but these days, because we've got social media and other channels, you know, sometimes you don't need it. LinkedIn is amazing for doing similar things to a website sometimes and gets better engagement. I always think websites are a source of information, 
but you know you need to actually obviously with SEO and things like that you need to have things being updated regularly on there either through blogs or um, news feeds or having a fantastic white paper that's downloadable but you really people to drive traffic to your website um, and think they're going to do something is often unrealistic because these days that's not the platform most people rely on they want it to come to them okay we is even even news now we want it to come to us you know, we, want, we might go on Facebook and actually read the Sydney Morning Herald there, for example. We won't necessarily go to the source. So just being mindful that a website can be great and they do need to be refreshed and on brand and have the right names and faces and information on there. But I try to discourage doing a new website for the sake of it. And if you're going to do a new website, make it different. Don't just replace like for like. Yeah, so a website from a super perspective, the website might have, a portal where members can come in and, and that's check their the thing and just... that's fine that has a purpose but yeah that takes you to the portal then so you're actually not really on the website now but yeah, yeah content has to be refreshed often can't be set and forget once again yeah so in that case the balances and everything else will be update presumably daily or very yeah. frequently yeah, yeah absolutely tools and calculators do you see those on websites they're good. I mean, they're good lead generation, I'm sure. You know, that's something, it's almost like a downloadable white paper. It's something you use to attract people to engage with you um, and actually delve into your, what you offer and your product and service offerings. So I think they can be really useful and, you know, a lot of people will use them. But will they become customers? May or may not. Yeah, so the sorts of things I'm thinking of there are maybe a retirement projection yeah. based on my current income and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll $50,000 per annum, for example. Is that enough? I don't know. Do you want to speak to an advisor? <laughs> Do you want to call the call centre? Lead generation, right? So that's it. I mean, those calculators also exist on the ATO website and other, other sort of government forums as well. So, look, I think they can be good. Have I ever personally as a consumer um, changed super funds because of that? No. That tends to not inform my decision-making, but, you know, I could be a rarity in these things. <laughs> uh, if you haven't switched super funds, you would not be a rarity. <laughs> you, would, you would be with the majority, I think, in that, in that case. Um, okay, so verbal communication then. So verbal communication. So this is not video. I guess this is actually in a room, maybe one-to-many or maybe one-to-one in a meeting, like that, that sort of those sorts of face-to-face -face type verbal communication sort of aspects? What, what are you, do you work in that space as well? Absolutely. So a lot of, um, particularly, I guess, um, people who might be new to a leadership role or have to present to investors, for example, they might come to me and say, can you help me become better at presenting? And I often challenge them and say, this is really your everyday challenge. It's not just about the big presentation. I think a lot of people obviously it's in human nature. We speak to be heard, but we're not great listeners. So that's the other thing in that kind of forum, depending on the style of presentation that you're doing. If it's a meeting, it's a two-way thing. It's not just about you talking. So I'm always mindful of time as well. So I think it's great to finish under time and not take up too much of someone's time, allow time for questions, um, know how long you have, respect it, and know what you want to say before you go into the meeting. And once again, never leave that room without a call to action. What do you want me to think, feel, or do? Goodness, I better make sure we finish this on time then. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the journalist in me. I, it's that deadline thing. I mean, you know, live, live TV doesn't wait for anybody, right? No, no, that's true. Um, 
So one aspect in there you said that you can't be late for that. So I think I think I think the the fifty minute meeting is good. The one hour, if you have an hour, people just fill an hour. Like I, I think meetings. I mean, we we'll all agree with just too many meetings. And with Zoom in the pandemic, there was just too many of those too. So I just think it's the same idea. You know, if you can send some information before and after, you have an agenda. You make sure the presentation is on point, and you know who matters most in the room and what you need to say to them, and also what information you want, what feedback you want from them as well have that conversation yeah that that question piece i think is a fantastic one because i mean a couple of things spring to mind one is going back to that negotiation conversation we had on your podcast a few weeks back that the the evidence around just being seen to take the other person's perspective just being seen to have some insight or care about what they're doing or an interest in what they're doing or what they might be just even being, despite the fact it might not be genuine, I mean, I'm hoping it is genuine, of course, but even if it's not genuine, because I've, I've tested this myself in a, in a study where it clearly wasn't genuine, the person didn't have any basis to be able to give a solution that was aligned with your values. They only had one thing. It was a, a, an asset management scenario and they're asking about an individual and their circumstances that they weren't a financial advice. They really couldn't help. However, this, despite that, the fact that this person in the scenario that I've given and tested with a control group, this, the, the person who asked about the other person, asked the person, oh, yeah, what are you trying to achieve? Or that, that, the words that affect. Well, then they became more trusted and people were more willing to, to invest in their fund. And the, the, the um, negotiation research shows the same thing. You, you get more concessions from the other party just by having done this, some of this sort of uh, questioning around their perspective, their interests, despite, even if you don't do anything with it. So that that it's like it seems to be almost no quite powerful, harm. yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, and then on top of that, of course, is that actually being able to then deliver something that might be of interest to them and hopefully relevant to them as well. So that that seems to, um, I think, seems to be a big one. And it also links into something we also spoke about in your podcast, which was this thing called the illusion of transparency, which is the idea that it feels like I'm transparent, what I'm thinking and feeling, it's transparent to my audience. And the audience feels like they know what I'm talking about. But actually, when you go and test this in studies, there is a gap where neither that, that transparency isn't there. There's an illusion of transparency that both of us are wrong and these bits of miscommunication can come in. So I quite like the questioning piece to go, really? Is what I'm thinking that they're thinking that I'm thinking? So is, is that whole connection? Is it, is it real or are we are both just kidding ourselves? It seems to be a good strategy to try and counter that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're good yeah. principles. Um, so on the questioning one, what sort of questions do you think you should ask? The, well, obviously your... open leading questions that you think is going to inform whatever decision you want to be made. So, you know, really broadly speaking, for example, when I meet with my clients, I often, my first question to them, say I'm doing a pitch for a, for a piece of new business, will be what does success look like to you? Mm. Because it'll look very different from one super fun to super fun financial services business to another tech company to another, you know, what is that, what does that piece of best communications look like? What's your comfort zone? How can we push you beyond that? What's working? What's not? What do you feel you need to get better at? And actually allowing them to, to inform any strategy that you present. Because the, the worst thing you can do is present a strategy that doesn't land with people who make the decisions, but also assuming, assuming that you know their business like they know their business. So a lot of what I do initially is a lot of listening and a lot of probing and a lot of thinking about what they say. And hopefully, like you say, they, they're telling you, you know, the truth. 
so that when you do present something to them and an idea, it actually resonates and it makes sense to them and, it's, and it mirrors their business strategy and what their big goals might be beyond communications as well. Yeah, so it's interesting. The examples you just gave were what type questions, um, which is interesting because the what questions and how questions seem to be very good ones for soliciting sort of open-ended uh, questions or open-ended responses. Why questions similarly could give you an open-ended sort of answer. However, they have that sort of accusatory tone to them, don't they? And that's Why it. You don't want to, yeah, exactly. And you and you kind of, you've got to be careful, right, because sometimes different personality types will take that questioning differently. So some people love it and some people find it confronting. But I, we often, you know, in my practice, I often say, well, I don't know if we're the right people to work with you because this is how we operate and this is what we know works trust us a little bit but we obviously want your input this is a this is not just me going off and doing communications this is your whole organization has to be on board with this so allowing them to actually think about it they may never have thought about it they might have thought we need some pr we need some crisis comms we need some media training but why what what, what are you trying to do what problem are you trying to solve yeah and in the context of advice i mean one of the, the key bits of well it goes back to the code of ethics in the case of advice that you need as an advisor to have words the effect of a reasonable basis to expect that your client understands your advice and how can you have that reasonable basis yeah. well you, you could ask them do you understand my advice however well that's for start it's a, a closed question it's a yes or no response and i probably but, just go yeah sure i do like yeah exactly <laughs> Well, and it might be because they think that they do understand, but they really don't, or it might be because they're too embarrassed to say that they don't. So, I mean, either of those two things are potentially problematic, but changing that to saying, well, actually, I don't think the person actually is in a good position to be able to ascertain whether they do understand. So my question should be, hey, can you just give me back the main three points that we've just discussed, just to check short, make sure we're on the same page, that that sort of thing. Then yeah, I'm absolutely. Yeah, absolutely contest whether genuinely is there a connection have we understood the same thing yeah and summing up the meeting with some of that you know so based on our discussion today these are the three things that I understand you want from me x y and z and that's their chance to to, to be challenged as well while it's still fresh you know to go away and make a bunch of assumptions and then write a proposal that doesn't land is, is probably going to create more you know more friction if you like mm, it's a waste of everyone's time in that case isn't it absolutely yeah. Um, okay. Now you told me we should be running on time or if not early. So we're currently by my watch got about three and a half minutes to go. <laughs> I, 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 I made you so proud about time. <laughs> That's why I'm completely anxious now. Uh, um, I haven't seen any more questions coming through. Um, so given that there's nothing else, I think um, I'll give you the opportunity to summarize what you think the main points are from this. Uh, I mean, maybe 30 words or, or less, and then we'll close up and give everyone a minute back in their, in their diary. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you for coming along today and hearing my rants about communications. I guess the end of the day, think about why you're communicating, who matters most, and then what you need to say. If you can use that framework, whatever the platform, whether it be videos or meetings or EDMs, you're on a winning streak and you're streets ahead of a lot of people who communicate for the sake of being heard rather than actually landing with, their, with the audience and the people that they're trying to communicate with at the end of the day. Sounds awesome. Um, now, for anyone who wants to get in touch with Amber, um, LinkedIn? Good old LinkedIn, Amber Danes, um, graceandgrit.com.au is another way to find me. Fantastic. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you, everyone, for your participation and for those who provided comments. We'll see you next time. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, everyone.